Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I also lead Roos's Modern Deterrence Project, which studies such hostile activities. You can find On the Cusp wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And to learn more about modern deterrence, visit roosty.org slash modern deterrence, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. And you can tweet me too. I'm at Elizabeth Braw. Many thanks to our partners at Willis House Watson for making this podcast possible. Now, the hostile activities facing our countries include the spreading of disinformation that, for example, prompts people across Europe to attack 5G antennas. Yes, that's right. All over Europe, people are sabotaging 5G antennas and attacking engineers installing them. So far, for example, nearly 90 antennas have been attacked in the UK alone. And people staging these attacks, conducting these attacks based on inaccurate information that 5G technology somehow spreads coronavirus. Now, who's spreading such disinformation? Many unthinking internet users, of course. But researchers have also found evidence of an organized campaign that looks a whole lot like what Russia did during the 2016 US election campaign. My guest on this episode is Damien Collins. Damien, who has been an MP for the Conservative Party for 10 years, chaired the Committee for Digital, Culture, Media and Sports between 2016 and 2019, and in that capacity made a phenomenal effort to investigate and tackle disinformation. Indeed, I dare suggest nobody in the UK has done more than Damien to counter disinformation. But sadly, judging from the attacks on 5G antennas and much else, the work is far from done. Damien, there has been uh, just an avalanche of, of odd rumors on social media over the past few weeks. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of the very peculiar rumor that went around uh, about the Prime Minister of Finland, Sanna Marin, who was, uh, had supposedly said uh, something highly negative about Donald Trump. And that went around, it went viral, and of course there was no truth to it. And then there was the very odd uh, conspiracy theory about 5G and coronavirus. That hasn't just been a rumor, but has actually led to people setting fire to, uh, to 5G antennas all over Europe. And it all sort of leaves one with the impression that there is no way we can stop this information. It spreads and uh, it, it, it takes on a life of its own. Have we lost the battle against disinformation and misinformation? No, we've, we've not lost the battle because I think there's more we can do that will put us in a better position to combat it. And I think we also are much more aware of the threat and the fact that there's so much scrutiny now and uh, of disinformation, different organizations looking to identify disinformation networks, then we understand the nature of the threat in a way that we just didn't do three or four years ago. But I think what you've rightly highlighted is that people are acting based on disinformation. Some people used to say, well, people see fake news on Facebook, do they really believe it? But the 5G is an example of how people really do, and they, and they are persuaded to go and you know, commit violent acts as a consequence of seeing that disinformation. I think for me, those real world consequences highlight why it's so important that we do something about it. And we means uh, everybody, clearly, and, and you have been at the forefront of trying to do something about it. You've been investigating this information. You've been pleading with social media executives to come and testify before the DCMS committee. But I think it's fair to say, despite those valiant efforts, and by the way, I recommend that everybody read the DCMS committee's report on disinformation. It's, it's fantastic. 
But despite those efforts, not very much has happened. And I think it raises the question, who should do something if not even the legislative bodies of, of, of significant countries can change this situation? Well, I think some things have happened since then. But I think my, my concern is that the, the sorts of abuses that we saw in um, 2016, the American presidential election that we've seen in the years since, in terms of networks of disinformation, we certainly see during coronavirus. Not enough has been done to check that, uh, although there have been some some reforms. You know, some countries have introduced laws on disinformation. In France, they have a disinformation law that, that works during elections. The UK government has introduced, has published its white paper on online harms, and we expect in due course a, a government bill. But there still needs to be more done now, and that requires, I think, probably governments to create frameworks for regulation of social media companies. But the social media companies could also do more themselves now to combat this and to recognize that they have a responsibility, they have a role. Um, There may be 2 billion users on Facebook. They all have a right to their opinion. But the reason those opinions reach large audiences is because those opinions are promoted and recommended and ranked by the social media companies. It's the tools the social media companies have created that help those news and opinions reach very large audiences. And that's where they have a responsibility to act and do more. It's their, it should be their responsibility to combat the spread of hate speech and disinformation that can cause harm on their platforms. And I, I certainly in the case of Facebook, I think they need to do a lot more than they've been prepared to do so far. UK politicians, I think, have a possibly a chance to, to influence Facebook, given that the head of policy at Facebook is one of your former colleagues, uh, Nick Clegg. And can I, 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 I wouldn't want to put you on the spot, but can I can I ask you, uh, how do you think uh, he has done so far in addressing your concerns? I think they've been, it's been disappointing, I think, Facebook's response. And I think Facebook's response to the more recent challenges around of hate speech online has been disappointing. And this isn't, for me, I think what we're seeing is a, it's a difference of policy and approach. It's not just a social media company saying, well, you know, in America, we, we can't be held legally liable for harmful content. We can't. It's not our job to regulate speech. There are free speech rights and, and amendments in America. And the first amendment in American law, you know, means we're very limited to what we can do because that, that doesn't really follow. Uh, YouTube uh, and Twitter have taken a different position on some of these issues. Now, those services are not perfect, but we've seen Twitter saying that they will call out speech on Twitter that they think is harmful, even if that has come from the President of the United States. They've banned political advertising. YouTube were prepared to take down deep fake films from the platform, not just flag them as disputed, but to remove them. Um, but YouTube have got rid of micro-targeting for political adverts. Um, so you can't micro-target on YouTube, but you still can on, on Facebook. Uh, so there are reforms that companies have been prepared to take. And I think we need Facebook to do more. So I don't think Nick Clegg being there has has got Facebook into a, into a better place compared to the rest of Silicon Valley. I still think that if you were an organization wishing to hijack social media to spread disinformation, you could probably do that more successfully and with, with less interruption on, on Facebook than you could on other popular channels. And for those of the listeners on this podcast who haven't been following the work of uh, the DCMS Committee, so the Digital Conscious Sports and Media, uh, or Media and Sports rather, I think it's it's important maybe to explain what happened when you when you conducted your inquiry into disinformation and and uh, the response or rather lack of response from social media companies. Could you just maybe go through very quickly what happened when you called on them to give evidence? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's often a very frustrating experience when you ask them to give evidence. 
they don't really accept the premise of the questions that they're asked, that there's a problem that they could do something about. Uh, they largely fall back on saying that, they, that they, they're doing something about it. I think if you take the line that Nick Clegg trots out now, he says that they, Facebook, that 90% of the hate speech that Facebook removes, they discover for themselves. Well, I mean, that's not the same thing as saying 90% of hate speech on Facebook is removed. It's, it's only the stuff that Facebook define as being hate speech that they are prepared to remove. Out of that amount of content, they, re, they find 90% of it. They don't give a number as to how many bits of content that is. Uh, and nor what else on the platform could my other people define as, as hate speech, but they do nothing about. So, and so you go round in these linguistic games. But of course, that's if you can get them to give evidence at all. And the frustrating thing has been that Mark Zuckerberg has been you know, reluctant to engage in questioning outside of America. But we tried to get him in front of our committee. And the reason we went for Mark Zuckerberg was that we were constantly frustrated when we had other people in, even senior people like Mike Schrepfer, the chief technology officer, who came to London to give evidence to the committee. These were constantly being told by people that they don't have that information. They're not cited on that question. Um, you know, when um, Monica Bickett gave evidence to the committee, we asked her whether Cambridge Analytica had acquired Facebook data, and they said no. And yet, six weeks later, it turned out that, yes, they had. Uh, now, are, the, are people just not briefed? Do they not know? And yet, we know that the concerns around Cambridge Analytica have been discussed within Facebook for uh, at least 18 months before that that point. So that's why it's a frustrating process. And the, the question you keep coming back to is, do these companies believe that they really are accountable to external bodies, be it parliamentary committees or government regulators or whoever? Or do they think they're ultimately just accountable to themselves? And you know, I think at the moment we're seeing the limitations of the structures they've put in place to self-regulate. You know, they've created a much fanfare, this oversight board with you know, senior people from around the world being recruited to sit on this oversight board that has been briefed as being like a Supreme Court for Facebook. And so people are saying, well, now in the midst of all these concerns about the about hate speech, particularly around the, the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in America and around the world, why, why isn't the oversight board calling for Mark Zuckerberg to do more? But then when you look at the constitution of this body, you realize it's got no power to really initiate inquiries. Its, its job is only really to determine whether if Facebook remove content from Facebook, They've done so in line with Facebook's own guidelines. They can't recommend changes to the guidelines. And in fact, in their constitution, it says that they should take no account of local laws when making their decisions. So even if, even if certain, a certain piece of content might be considered to be harmful and illegal within a country, unless it breaches Facebook's own guidelines, they don't have to do anything about it. And it can't be right, I don't think, that these sorts of bodies and structures can trade and operate in such a way whereby they have sole access to the information about what goes on within the company. No one can audit and inspect them externally. They're only held to account by their own rules. And they've got no legal liability or responsibility to intervene beyond that. And I think that is that environment has created this perfect place for hate speech to thrive. And it's so interesting that it's it's completely it's a completely different setup for from what we have for other, what we might call, uh, critical services to our society, uh, from uh, water to power to education to transportation, where we have regulators who have to be consulted and who have a say in what is permitted. And the question has, or the, the idea has been raised a number of times that there should be a, a regulator for social media companies. Uh, do you think, uh, well, first of all, do you think it, it's a good idea? And do you think, uh, second of all, that it would fly? Would it, would it even be possible to get such a thing through the parliament? Well, I think it would, and I, but I think it's, you, know, you touched on other industries there, and that's absolutely right. There are well-established principles in some industries that you know the polluter pays, and that there are there are strict guidelines for companies where we know there can be 
uh, hazard in, in the work that they do because of the nature of that work, there are standards we accept them, expect them to follow. That doesn't mean to say we're anti those industries. It just means that because we recognize those industries have a wider impact on society if something goes wrong, there are standards that have been set by them and there are independent bodies that, that determine whether they're meeting those standards or not. And we could absolutely create that for social media. And I think we should. In some ways, the technology sector has grown so fast. It's grown faster than our ability to keep pace with the oversight that should be there. But I think a good, good analogy is broadcasting. There was a recognition really from the 1930s onwards that radio and then television was a very powerful medium. People that had the licenses to use that media had great power to communicate directly with people in their homes uh, instantly around the world. But with that power should come some sort of responsibilities as well, some checks and balances on the way that it was used. Uh, the requirement of standards of fairness and partiality, taste and decency were met. And we created regulatory bodies with power set by parliament to do that job. There's no reason why we couldn't do the same thing for social media as well. We're not saying, no one would say that we don't have free speech in broadcast media. We do, but there are limits on that free speech and those limits are set around the harm that speech can cause other people. We have a situation on the internet now where Mark Zuckerberg says, well, yes, the limit on free speech is the harm that speech causes other people, but he is determining what that harm is. It's not being determined by parliament or society. And that's the problem. Now, I think the intervention needs to be around speech that causes harm, but it can't be left to Mark Zuckerberg to determine what that means. And uh, you mentioned how quickly the industry has grown, which is obviously something that's happened while we have been watching during the past couple of decades. And I, I remember in, in the previous life, I was a correspondent based in San Francisco. And one day uh, on one of my many visits to startups, I went to a startup uh, just like uh, the other startups. I thought it was, I think, one year old at the time, uh, south of market in San Francisco, a warehouse, uh, as, as is usually the case with, with these startups and a few guys working you know, with their bikes at their desk nothing out of the ordinary. Well, that was Twitter. And uh, this is so, uh, within, not just within my lifetime, within the lifetime of, of my career. And yet it has grown, this company along with with Facebook obviously has grown to enormous importance uh, to the point obviously that the President of the United States uses it exclusively to communicate. But can, can I just follow up on your previous point, do you think there is enough appetite and and urgency in, in parliaments around the world to legislate regulation of social media companies? I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic that people like you call for it, but is there a majority, do you think? Well, so we're starting to see. So obviously in, in Germany, um, the German hate speech laws were brought into force online as well. So content that, break, that breaches those, those laws um, creates liability for the, for the social media companies. France has done it where a judge can rule a piece of content as being disinformation during, a, during an election period and require it's taken down. Singapore has done something similar, but with a government minister making that decision. Australia have legislated to require the companies to remove violent uh, con uh, content. And so I think we're seeing parliaments around the world making those decisions. I think what's happened now is coronavirus has put this into a sh sharper focus because we're talking about disinformation that can affect public health. I think that's led to a new definition of what imminent harm, harmful content means. I think the fact that Facebook closed David Icke's um, Facebook page because he was spreading conspiracy theories around coronavirus and 5G, I think shows that they are, I don't think that's a decision they would have made in the past, actually. I think that shows the public, public appetite is there to say, actually, disinformation around, spreading lies around things that um, affect me, like coronavirus, that could affect the health of my family, is something that shouldn't be allowed to happen unchecked. So I think we're seeing changes there. 
I think the scrutiny now that's come and with major advertisers putting their advertising on Facebook because they're unhappy with the way in which Facebook is used to promote hate speech by people and the lack of action of the company to intervene. The bigger debate in America now around whether the Section 230 sort of freedom from liability, the safe harbor provisions in American law, whether they should continue or not. I think we're seeing this, this debate move rapidly. And I think you know, part of it is just taking a step back and saying, I think people are taking a step back and saying, well, the medical conspiracy stuff is, is a problem, affects public health, but also too much of social media has become a place where people get battered and abused for holding contrary opinions. Racism is rife. Hate speech is rife. People in the public eye, be they sports stars or musicians or politicians, are getting abused because of who they are and the color of their skin. And this has just become the kind of meat and drink of, of, of being on social media. And it's, it's what we want. And also, the, is it right that the companies should profit out of this by creating an environment which is holding people's attention, drawing them in, and uh, in, in many cases, recommending and directing them towards this, this hate speech, uh, and yet they have no obligation to do anything about it. Is this, is this right? You know, if Facebook is the kind of digital town square, as people have spoken about it, you've got a question at the moment, how healthy a place that town square is. Is that the sort of environment you'd want to spend your time? And therefore, I think public attitudes on this is shifting. And, and if the public shifts on this, then, then parliaments will shift too. Yeah, and, and if that town square that is so full of vitriol, if, if that is what our society has become, it, it, it doesn't, uh, it, it's quite depressing to think of our society, which is the high, most highly educated, well, we, have, we are the most highly educated generation that's ever lived uh, on this planet uh, globally. And, and in some countries, uh, education is, is, of course, extremely high. But despite all that instruction, all that knowledge, um, f- for us to behave in this manner is, is actually quite shocking. And as you say, it's, it's even more shocking that, that, uh, that yeah. companies are making money out of it. Uh, absolutely. And let's, I think that's not pretend as well that this is kind of just such a fast-moving issue that the companies are struggling to keep pace with it. They've known about these problems for years, but they thought they'd get away with not doing anything about it. Well, I was very interested to see uh, uh, about six weeks or so ago, the, the Wall Street Journal publishing information from an internal Facebook report from 2016, another one in 2018, uh, which, and those reports said that, that Facebook was directing people towards extremist content, that 64% of people that joined Facebook groups where extremist ideas were discussed did so based on Facebook's recommendations that they should do it. So they know that the algorithm drives people towards extreme content and could work to radicalize people in opinions, and they've not done anything about it. And I think think that's why we're now also seeing Facebook employees and former employees also speaking out about the decisions the companies are taking. This is not something that was unforeseen. This was something that was known about years ago, and they weren't prepared to do anything about it because it didn't suit their business model to to do anything about it. And, and uh, we should remember, it's, it's not just Facebook, but, but other, other social media as well. I've noticed on, on YouTube, so I happen to be interested in East Germany and classical music, and all it ever feeds me is more East Germany, more classical music. Absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, so the, I think the, it's, it's been reported, although getting Facebook, uh, getting YouTube to admit to this in public is quite hard, but it, is, it, was, it was briefed, I think, by the company that 70% of what people watched on YouTube was, was done at their recommendation, their prompting through the next up feature and you can disable that but nevertheless that's how most people experience what they see so you're absolutely right um i think what you know youtube have been prepared to do is um i I think they've been prepared i think during coronavirus to do a bit more to call out fake stuff but i still think on anti-vaccine conspiracy theories in particular there's far still far too much on youtube 
my concern still is that you know it's not enough just to flag content as being disputed. I think there's a question of whether it should be there at all. And this, I think, will become even more important if we get to the point where we have coronavirus vaccine. And we, you know, for it to be effective, we need a lot of people to take it. And if uh, and, and there will be, we can anticipate a huge battle that will be between you know, public health authorities and the anti-vaccine movement. And I think the role of social media companies will be really important. And that will be a moment in time where they've got to decide think, whose side they're on. And that's where disinformation is no longer an abstraction, but an immediate concern, because without the vast majority of people being vaccinated or immune against coronavirus, we won't be, be uh, returning to normal. But yet, if they consume this anti-vaxxing content, then it's very likely they will refuse to take the vaccine. And it was, it was a very alarming poll from New York the other day that showed uh, a significant percentage of, of New Yorkers unwilling to take a corona vaccine when it comes when it becomes available. Uh, that's uh, really frightening. I wanted to ask you about something else, uh, Damien, and that is the power of Parliament to uh, subpoena uh, social media companies, social media executives. I know you have said you want to see that happen. Do you think uh, there are any realistic prospects of, of that happening or will you have to continue to, to, to beg and, and hope that, that, they, that they turn up? Well, the companies are largely required to attend within their own jurisdiction. So that's why Mark Zuckerberg has given testimony in, uh, in, in Congress. Uh, but actually, the, the United States Congress does have stronger legal powers to force attendance. The legal power to force someone to appear in full parliament still exists. And um, anyone in the jurisdiction of the UK in the country can be required by, by parliament to attend. But the question has always been, if they, don't, if they don't show up, what can you really do? So I do think we need to look again at those powers. I think there should be a, an obligation to attend a parliamentary hearing if, if you've been required to do so. It tends to be most effective the request in, in regulated industries. So you know, I, was on this, I was a member of the select committee when Rupert Murdoch gave evidence about phone hacking in 2011. Now, the reason you know, Rupert Murdoch was in the UK at the time, but he's an American citizen, uh, but he decided to come because at, the time, at that time he held a UK broadcasting license for Sky. And therefore, the question would be, will it, is it, would it be the act of a fit and proper person, uh, which Ofcom has to determine you are in order to hold a license, to decline a summons to appear in front of Parliament? And so I think you rightly decide that, no, that's not what a fit and proper person would do. Now, we don't have the same power over, over Mark Zuckerberg, but I think it, it does beg the question when we have these multinational companies that are headquartered outside of the UK, what accountability is there for those companies? Because often they're UK representatives, no matter how charming and brilliant they might be, they're not the decision makers. The, the, the big decisions are taken in Silicon Valley, and therefore you know, there needs to be some way of holding those organizations to account. And, and I think in terms of that responsibility, I mean, we can create regulators. Companies have got to comply with the law in the countries where they do business. But I think we need to look at other ways in which we can properly investigate and challenge what goes on within these companies, being like giving universities and academics access to privileged information in order to assess the work that's being done or or through just the cooperation of regulatory bodies in different jurisdictions. These companies are so fundamental to our daily lives. I think it's important the people that run them are held to account. But so much of what happens happens in secret within those organizations without us having really any way to, to scrutinize that. The trouble is there's, there's the companies act as wall gardens where there's very little scrutiny of what happens inside them. No one has the right to have access to important information within those companies. So when something goes wrong, we're very limited in our ability to question them or really understand what the problems were. And that's why I think we need independent bodies or independent researchers to have access to these companies and the right to question them and challenge them when 
when things go wrong. I wonder if we another thing we need is uh, more activist uh, citizens, not activists in the sense that they go and, and uh, attack 5G towers, but activists in, in the sense that they uh, take more pride or ownership of how they consume news. There was a, a very alarming report from the Reuters Institute at the University of Oxford the other day that showed that young people and, and uh, less educated people are, are less likely to consume news online from public service broadcasters and, and radio companies and more likely to uh, get their news from social media platforms. And it seems to me that this is uh, uh, we are seeing the beginning of some sort of divide in society where if you're well educated or older, you, you get vetted, uh, you consume vetted news because you subscribe to, to newspapers and, and you um, get your news from, from public service companies. And uh, whereas if you're less educated or younger, you consume news that has been vetted by nobody. Is that too an alarmist an interpretation? Uh, well, let's start. It's a too alarmist an interpretation. It's a concern I, I have that news becomes a luxury product that is consumed by people that are prepared to pay a license fee for the BBC or prepared to pay a subscription to a newspaper online. And that the idea of that sort of curated, edited news. And the reason that sort of news is, important, is so important is not just because of the quality of it, it's from people who put their name to it, people who are accountable what that says. They, they have a liability and accountability for it. The problem with a lot of disinformation is that we don't know who's doing it and where it's coming from. There's no accountability. And that we, society will be a lot poorer if people are more and more reliant on news from these unreliable, unaccountable sources. And that could then lead to a, a community where, not where people necessarily believe fake news stories, but on the whole, they just don't believe anything at all. And, that's, and that is very damaging for society, very damaging for democracy, because Democracy at the end of the day is about citizens taking informed voting based on an informed choice, basically access to knowledge and information and making a decision based on that. And if people don't have access to reliable sources of information, that's alarming. I think it's very alarming as well. The whole anti-mainstream media movement now, I think I think it should be seen as a, a direct attempt to undermine the challenge that comes from the independent media to people in power. And that, again, would be very damaging for society if that succeeds. And it's damaging to, uh, to the very cohesion of our societies if you can't even agree on what is true and what is not. But Damien, can I just ask you one very quick question? And uh, not, again, to put you on the spot, but how, which sort of news do you consume? Well, I mean, I, I'm probably a bit, of a bit of a hybrid in that I, I sort of consume some news from the BBC from, and from newspapers. But also, I see a lot on social media as well, particularly international news and stories as well, or specialist news uh, you know, through, particularly through Twitter. I probably get quite a bit of my news during the day from there as well. But, but I wouldn't want to be in a position where the only news I saw was what the Twitter algorithm thinks I'm interested in, you know, um, and, and you don't get the chance to be exposed to other things as well. And the investigatory work that the journalists do as well. So, I mean, the, the, the great—I mean, the, the great function, the benefit, the great benefit that social media has brought um, is the ability. If you've got an interest in news or a story, you can have access to multiple news points from around the world, real experts and specialists, you know, be they researchers or journalists working around the world and in, in real time. And that wasn't the case before, so that's a huge benefit. But in terms of the reporting of the world as it is around us and getting, you know different viewpoints on that based on authenticated, reliable sources of information that people put their name to. That is so important that that continues to be part of our media landscape and that 
and that, uh, and that everyone has access to it, not, not just people who are prepared to pay for it. And on that note, I can recommend to everybody listening that uh, it's a good idea to follow Damien on Twitter, and that is Damien Collins MP, if I'm not mistaken. It's at Damien Collins on Twitter. That's right. So go ahead and follow Damien. And thank you very much, Damien Collins, for joining us today and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Should parliaments have the power to subpoena social media executives? And should social media platforms make more information available to users about dodgy accounts? Tweet me your thoughts. My Twitter handle again is Elizabeth Braw. Many thanks to our producer, Tom Ascott. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp. <laughs>